Let's take a moment and pray. Lord, we thank you this morning in, in the beauty and the joy of worship. Lord, we invite you. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come, Lord, and fill our minds and our hearts. Come, Lord, and fill my words. Come, Lord, and fill us all that we might be led to Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I heard a story, and perhaps you have heard it too, about a wealthy man who was determined to give his elderly mother the best birthday present that he could ever give her. And he couldn't find anything. He was looking and looking and searching and searching. And one day he read about a bird that had a vocabulary of 10,000 words. It could speak several languages. And it had been taught to sing three operatic arias. And he thought, well, that's it. I got to get her that. He spent $50,000 on this bird. And he had it special delivered to his mother as a surprise. Well, the next day he was going to call her, but he got very busy and he got busy. And it wasn't until the end of the day that he was able to call. And, and so he phoned her to see if she'd received the present. He said, Mom, what'd you think about the bird I sent? She said, Honey, you are so thoughtful. It was absolutely delicious. <laughs> now, what's the point? His mother had no idea of the bird's real purpose, and therefore she unintentionally wasted it. I want to make the case today that if you don't understand God's purpose for your life, you'll be in danger of wasting it. There's a lot of confusion in our culture about the purpose of life, the meaning of life, what life is all about. The new American guru, Oprah Winfrey, had a talk show some years ago in which she was talking about discovering your purpose, the meaning of life. And at each commercial break, that were really long, by the way, she would say, now come back after the break, and we're going to tell you what your purpose for life is. At the end of the show, not only had she not revealed anything, but this is what she said. Remember, you've got to figure it out yourself. <laughs> In other words, do whatever and good luck. Thanks for watching the commercials. <laughs> now, there are a lot of approaches to the purpose of life. The hedonist would say life is all about having a good time, having fun. And I think in the area we live in this region, there are a lot of hedonists, a lot of people engaging in that way of looking at the world. It's all about fun. The materialists would say that the purpose of life is about having the most stuff. You might have seen the bumper sticker that says, the one who dies with the most toys wins. Thing is, I, I've never seen a hearse yet with a U-Haul being pulled behind it. You might have the most stuff, but you'll still die. And what will you do with all of it? The naturalists would say the purpose of life is to perpetuate itself. In other words, we're here for biological reasons, survival of the species. This is Darwin's theory. The rapper Ice-T ascribes to this view of life. This is what Ice-T says. The only reason we're here is to reproduce, just chill out and reproduce. <laughs> Keep the species alive. Now that probably doesn't make you want to jump out of bed in the morning. Might make you want to jump into bed. <laughs> Bernard Levin, who was one of really very famous English colonists, 
of his generation said this. And he was a non-Christian, by the way. He wrote an article called Life's Great Riddle and No Time to Find Its Meaning. And he wrote that despite all of the worldly success, he feared that he might have, quote, wasted reality in chase of a dream. And this is what he went on to write. I quote him. To put it bluntly, have I time to discover why I was born before I die? I've not managed to answer the question yet. And however many years I have before me, they are certainly not as many as there are behind. There's an obvious danger in leaving it too too late. Why do I have to know why I was born? Because, of course, I'm unable to believe that it was an accident. And if it wasn't an accident, life must have a meaning. And he went on to say this. Countries like ours, and of course England's a lot like ours, are full of people who have all the material comforts they desire, together with such non-material blessings as a happy family, and yet lead lives of quiet and at times noisy desperation, understanding nothing but the fact that there is a hole inside of them, and that however much food and drink they pour into the hole, however many motor cars and television sets they stuff it with, however many well-balanced children and loyal friends they parade around the edges of it, it still aches. The Bible says that life is not ultimately about us. Life is about God and God's invitation to us to join him in his purpose for our lives. This is his story. We get to take part, but it's his story. And the tragedy, of course, is that that we and our culture is so radically broken that we don't know what we're here for. And people scramble around their lives trying to figure it all out. Every philosophy and every approach to life that begins with us or leaves God out of the equation always ends up in the wrong place. And in fact, it may end up so far away from the Lord in this life and for all of eternity. The gospel today has something to say about it. Now, let me just remind you of the context, and then we'll look at a few verses. Jesus has just been baptized. He's been baptized by John in the River Jordan, and the Holy Spirit of God has come upon him in power in the form of a dove. He's been anointed as Messiah and Christ, and God the Father, the Almighty, has spoken and said, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased It's pointing to the unique identity of Jesus. He's Messiah, he's Christ, he's Lord, he's King, he's Son of God. And Jesus never says, that's not right. Like, those titles are not about me. John the Baptist, and many people try to put those kind of titles on him. John the Baptist said, no way, that's not me. Like, I'm only here to get things ready for the one who's coming. I've come so that he might be revealed. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie the straps of his sandals. John says, nope. And Jesus says, he doesn't refute it. And after he's tempted by the enemy in the wilderness, he comes on the scene and he begins to declare. Verse 15. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent 
and believe the gospel. In other words, what the world has been waiting for, and when we looked at this all fall, if you've been around here, all the promises of the Old Testament pointing forward to a time. Jesus says the time is at hand. It's fulfilled. They're pointing forward. All that God has said, his plan would play out from the beginning. It's all coming to fulfillment in Jesus as he is there. He's there as king. He's there as Messiah. He's there as Lord. He's there as son of God. Now, what we tend to do is to think that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is something that happens only later. It will be later. But we tend to think, oh, it's after our bodies expire, when we stop breathing, when we're dead. But Jesus says, no, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is breaking into this world. And it's doing so in me, in Jesus. And if you want access to this kingdom, if you want access to God himself, Jesus boldly declares you'll do it through him and him alone. It's radical. And how do you do that? Well, he tells us. He says, repent. Now, sadly, for most people, repentance has taken on just basically behavioralism. I've been drinking too much. I really should cut back a little bit. I've not been very nice to my wife or my husband. Maybe I should be a little kinder to them. I haven't been going to church very much. We should start going again. And while none of those are bad things, and they are actually all really good things, I commend all of them, (laughs) to repent means so much more. The, The Greek word metanoia means to have such a change of mind, such a change of perspective, That we begin to see things again, not from our perspective, but from God's. We return to God's perspective on life and on purpose. And in in reorienting ourselves to him, in our minds changing, then our behavior begins to follow. Then it affects the way we live. Then it changes the way we go about our life. And we have a perfect example of this in driving. And we probably all know this example. We, we make U-turns whenever we recognize I'm going the wrong direction. And if I continue in this way, not only will I not get to my goal, but I'll end up so far away from it that it will never possibly come about. That's what repentance is like. It's not enough to know we're going the wrong direction. We actually have to turn the car around, turn our lives around and reorient to the Lord. Jesus says, repent, reorient yourself to God's purpose for your life through him. Now, that's not a one-time event. Oh, sure, it may begin in baptism, and it may occur as you hear a message and your heart begins to be moved and your mind is beginning to go, oh, my goodness, he's reading my mail and talking about me. And it may happen as you're reading the scriptures and suddenly it's like, This is more than words on a page. It's calling me to respond and to engage. It may happen in a one-time event. It always has a start, but it goes on and it continues throughout our lives. The reformer Martin Luther said, all of life is repentance. It doesn't mean he, he wasn't saying we have to repent of everything. He's saying we're constantly reorienting our lives to God. Why? Because we've all been given false views from our families and our cultures. And we have this habit within us of going our own way. That's a good definition of sin. 
And we've got to reorient, repent, re-engage, go back to God's way of seeing things and align ourselves with Jesus. Now, repentance, which, which tends to start in the mind, is always closely aligned with belief. And belief is something of the heart. It's something of the deep part of who you are. Jesus said, repent and believe. Belief's about more than the facts. The facts are good, but, but it has to do with, with the way you trust and live. Um, a, good, uh, a good example is from poker. I'm sure we don't have too many poker players here, but there was a day when I played a lot of poker and like belief is when you, when you go, man, look at this hand. I don't know what they've got, but look at this hand. I'm going all in. That's belief, putting all your trust, all your hope in what you've got. Jesus is saying belief is about putting all your trust in me, in him. Not in the way you do things, not in your behavior, not in your gifts and skills, not in your beauty and looks and power and money, in Him. Believe in Him. That's what we heard as Melissa read for us from Romans there. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who believes in Jesus will not end in shame. Y'all... Shame is what drives a lot of our lives. Perfectionism, got to be more, got to look prettier, got to be the right weight, got to be smart enough, strong enough, trying to beat down the voices of life, often from our parents, definitely from our culture who says, if you don't have more, 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 and if you aren't number one, number one, number one, then you're not enough. And we live our lives under this baggage of shame. But the gospel is, repent and believe, and there will be no shame for you in the presence of Almighty God. The gospel is, God came. He loves you. He loves you so much, He came. And He lived the life that we were intended to live. And He died a death upon a cross to take the penalty of our sins. And then God raised Him from the dead. That's the gospel. Believe, Jesus said, in the gospel. It's not just an idea. Notice how the text moves on as Jesus is giving this message. He doesn't stop with a set of ideas. No, he proceeds to call people to himself. He he doesn't say this is about tips and techniques for you to live your best life now. This is not about how to improve you. He's calling us to himself. This is not Oprah's message of do whatever and good luck. Verse 16 says this, as he's passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. He entered into their lives. It wasn't just here in church on a Sunday morning. He went right where they lived. He entered their careers, their plans, their families, their friendships, their purpose. And he said, reorient it all to me. Follow me. Come on, is what Jesus told them. Adjust your life to his life. C.S. Lewis wrote this. Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no consequence, no importance. And if it's true, it's of 
infinite importance. The only thing Christianity can't be is moderately important. And I fear that's something that many people in the Western American church are doing with faith, is we're making it moderately important, tacking it on to the plans we have for our lives. But the Bible knows nothing of that. Just nothing of it. it. It's not about adding on when it's convenient to our schedules. It's not about some form of fire insurance for the future. Notice in verse 18, it says, And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 20 says almost the same thing. Speaking of James and John, it says, And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, if you've been around Holy Cross for any amount of time, you've heard these verses because it's from Mark 1, 16 and 17 that we've really understood what the call is and how we define discipleship. Jesus calls us to follow him. And as we do that, inviting him and reorienting our lives to him, then he begins to form us, shape us. It's a process that he takes us through over time. And he gives us a new purpose. He says, I'll make you become fishers of men. It's not that all of the purposes of our life go out the window. It's not that we've got to go be, you know, monks on a mountain somewhere. It's just that the things that we do begin to reorient to him. And they begin to have his purpose infused in them. We begin to have his purpose, reaching other people around us with the good news that God is crazy in love with broken and fallen people. That God is after your hearts and after your lives. Friends, there is not a single verse in the Bible, and I've read it all the way through multiple times. There's not a single verse that says you can just do whatever you like. It's not in there. That's not what Jesus came to give us. And in fact, Jesus says almost the opposite. He said, there are people in this world who will gain everything and they'll forfeit their souls. And and you've probably met people like this. They might be the most beautiful, the most successful, and yet there's this emptiness in them, this deadness inside. That might even be you today. Where by the world's standards, it looks okay, but inside you know it's empty and dead. You might fake it for a while, but you you can't do it forever. So God doesn't want 10% of us. He doesn't want 20 or 50 or 90. He wants all of who we are. He wants all of us. He wants the bad as well as the good. He wants the places of brokenness, the places where you have been shamed, where you have wallowed, where you have been wounded. And he says, I will give you life. That's the invitation. I will meet you in those places. And I will transform your strengths into something I can use. And I will transform your broken places also into something that he can use. Only he can take the shames of our life and make them beautiful and glorious. It's remarkable. He wants to give you his life. He wants to give you himself. He wants to give you something that's real and lasting, a purpose that matters and will go beyond even the days you have on this earth. You do not want to be like that elderly woman from the beginning of my sermon who ate the bird, not knowing its purpose, wasted something that could have been beautiful. 
Jesus says this, repent and believe the kingdom of heaven is near. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would would pull apart those carefully constructed falsehoods in our lives. And that, that your spirit would gently, kindly, truthfully, and forcefully put a mirror up before our lives to show us the places where we need to reorient. Not to the people to our right and left, but reorient to you, Lord, to your scriptures and your word, to your purpose. And Lord, we pray today as we prepare for a baptism that that these parents and godparents will be given your spirit of power and life that they might lead this child to know what it is to be yours. We ask these things, Lord, in the good and kind and precious and powerful name of Jesus, Savior and Lord. Amen.